Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Stephen Treziak, physician scientist, chief of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare and professor and chair of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. Currently, Dr. Treziak's research is focused on a new field called compassionomics, in which he's studying the scientific effects of compassion on patients, patient care, and those who care for patients. He's author of the best-selling book, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. Broadly, Dr. Treziak's mission is to make healthcare more compassionate through science. Welcome to the show, Steve. It is great to be talking with you today. How did you come to enter medicine in the first place? Uh, you mean how I got interested in medicine? How you got interested in medicine? What, what was your path into medical school? I actually was a philosophy major in college, and I took all the pre-medical courses. Uh, I think that my reason for going into medicine was, like many people, when, when I interview uh, medical students, candidates for medical school, they all typically have some sort of answer like they want to go into medicine in order to help people. And I felt the same way over the subsequent 25 years or so. I think that I, while I've always wanted to help people and I believe that everyone, every patient ought to be treated with compassion, I never really saw it as a scientific discipline until the past few years. And so I migrated my research program. I'm, I'm an intensivist. I study resuscitation science, and I was studying brain injury after cardiac arrest in ICU patients. And it was just a few years ago that I began to migrate that research program over to what my colleague Anthony Mazzarelli and I call compassionomics, which is the study of the effects of compassion on patients, on patient care, and those who care for patients, so our healthcare providers. All right. Can you remember the seminal moment? Can you remember the aha moment when you thought this compassionomics is what it's all about? Yes, I, I well there there have been several moments along the way. One is when I uh, had it was actually uh, a an unexpected question from a 12-year-old that really changed the trajectory of my entire research program. And that 12-year-old was my son. And so one evening he came home and he said, "Dad, I know you give a lot of talks. Can you help me with my talk? I have to give a talk for my class at school." I said, of course. And I thought that this would be a wonderful father-son bonding opportunity. And uh, I said, what's your talk about? And he reached into his backpack and he pulled out a piece of paper and he laid it on my desk. And he said, this is the topic for the talk. And on the, on the piece of paper was written the question, what is the most pressing problem of our time? He was 12 years old, so seventh grade. Wow. I don't know. I don't know what you were doing, Moyes, when you were twelve years old. But I was not doing what is the most pressing problem of our time. No. And he shared with me with what he thought it, what he thought he would speak about. And I said, "Well, that's important. But do you really believe that that's the most pressing problem of our time? Because if you don't really believe it, you're not going to convince anyone in your class." And he said, uh, "Look, Dad, I'm just trying to get my homework assignment done. Okay." But to his credit. He went and he thought about it, and he came back two nights later with what he really believed was the most pressing problem of our time. 
it doesn't matter what he picked. What matters is that he actually believed it. So he could give a talk that not only his class found compelling, but he did too. And so that started a, a period of great introspection for me because I realized that I was not following my own advice. So I'm a, I'm a researcher. And how do uh, successful researchers develop a research career? It, it usually goes something like this. Uh, I'm at the University of X, and here we're famous for Y. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Or we have a one-of-a-kind research instrument. No one else can get these data, so that's what I'm going to study. Or my mentor is Dr. Jones, and Dr. Jones is a, is a world-class researcher in this field, and she can open doors for me, so that's what I'm going to study. And hopefully, we end up working on things that we think are important, meaningful, scientifically, uh, intellectually stimulating. But do we really believe that we're working on the most pressing problem of our time? And what would everything look like if we actually did? So I just went on this period Uh, I guess it was sort of an existential crisis for me. And what is the most pressing problem of our time for my, through my lens of experience as a physician scientist? Of course, there's no such thing as the one most pressing problem of our time because it's all through your lens of experience and, and different people will have totally different answers. But through my lens of experience as a physician scientist, I define my most pressing problem of our time. And that's when I came across the hypotheses around compassionomics, because right now, as we talk today, at least in the U.S., I can tell you that there is rigorous, uh, robust scientific evidence that we are in the midst of a compassion crisis. And so that became the most pressing problem of our time in, in healthcare, at least through my lens of experience as a physician scientist. And I've been focusing on, on that ever since. Say, say a little bit about compassion crisis. Let, let me give you some data uh, to support the notion that we don't have enough compassion in healthcare. In the U.S., a Harvard study found that 46% of Americans believe that our healthcare system is not compassionate. But when you ask them about healthcare providers or physicians and nurses, they say the same thing. Nearly half say that the people providing our medical care are not compassionate. There's data. It's, this is not just a U.S. phenomena. Data from Europe, very similar survey data. There are numerous rigorous research studies which show that physicians miss 60 to 90 percent of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion. And there's even some research to show that physician statements to patients in the context of an office visit only 1% of physician statements to patients are statements of compassion. This is also coupled with the burnout epidemic in healthcare, where more than one-third of physicians specifically, but the same, uh, I believe, is true also in, in, in nursing, but one-third of physicians are so burned out that they have high levels of what's called depersonalization, which is one of the cornerstones of the burnout epidemic. And depersonalization is the inability to make a personal connection, which yeah. can make one prone to callous or uncaring behavior. Yes. And in the era of electronic health records, there are numerous studies that have shown that healthcare providers are currently spending more time 
looking into computer screens than looking their patients in the eyes. And based on all of these data, I conclude that we have a compassion crisis indeed. All right. Give me an example, a concrete example of an interaction where compassion has been taken out of the equation. Well, I like to be evidence-based as often as possible. So the first, the first example I will give you is actually an interruption. Okay, so there are data from the there have been data over the last twenty five years basically that have shown physicians specifically often interrupt patients before they even can tell uh, what is the main thing that they're worried about, their main reason for the visit. And so there, uh, and there's data to show that it's even getting worse. So in the most recent study that I'm familiar with, a study from the Mayo Clinic in the U.S., the time to first interruption, the median time was 11 seconds. Uh, so it's even getting worse over time. But what's, e- what's more interesting to me is that if you just let patients talk, the median time that they need in order to state their main, their chief concern, the thing that they're really worried about, is only 26 seconds. And so I would say that the, the, an example of compassion missing, uh, being missing in healthcare is right off the bat just interrupting. So not even showing the patient enough respect to listen to what they have to say, their main reason or their main worry. Another way uh, lack of compassion can manifest is in the use of statements that are term that essentially terminate the dialogue rather than are continuing. So there are, there are many studies which show that uh, healthcare providers are prone to using terminator type of language rather than um, some sort of uh, affirmation of what the patient is feeling and some sort of a continuer statement that allows them to expound upon that. There's even evidence uh, that that there's a compassion crisis in uh, critical care. So at the end of life, end of life uh, discussions in the ICU and, and compassionomics, by the way, is not all about end of life and palliative care. It's about everyday care. But even in the context of palliative care in the ICU and, and pa- meetings with patients and families about end of life decision making, a NIH-funded uh, study from the University of Washington found that fully one-third of meetings uh, with patients and families about end-of-life decisions had zero statements of compassion towards the patient and family. And if there's any time in life when one needs compassion, I would think it would be at the end of life. And so there is, uh, there's robust evidence. We, we, uh, Anthony Mazzarelli, my co-author, and I, we devote an entire chapter to it in, in Compassionomics. Just going through the data that compassion is on the decline uh, and that, this, that the decline seems to be accelerating over time. When we talk about compassion, is it that we don't feel for the person that we are interacting with? Or is it that we just are so engaged in our own problem, which is crisis of not having enough time to unpack the issues so that you can get on and make a diagnosis? Where do you think the problem is? There is a study that uh, has specifically addressed this, and it was a study from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And what they studied is the concept of what they call, the investigators called time affluence. So it is the feeling that one has plenty of time, the feeling that one is not in a hurry. 
So when you don't have any time affluence, you feel you feel rushed, you feel you're in a hurry. And what the investigators done, this was it, this study was from the psychology domain. And they studied the effects of how you use your time on how you feel about the time that you have. And what these investigators from Wharton found is that of the different ways to spend your time. So for example, wasting time, spending time on yourself, getting an unexpected windfall of free time. What they found is that there's only one use of time, which actually makes people believe that they have more time. And that is spending time on other people, spending time helping other people. So the answer is, I think that we have a mindset problem in healthcare in that we feel, we believe that we're always in a hurry when actually when we spend time investing in another person and treating them with compassion, the evidence would support that we actually don't feel like we're in such a hurry. Right. And this is coupled with the evidence that compassion on average, uh, and when you look through, uh, and we, we devote a whole chapter uh, to the issue of time uh, in the book, on average, compassionate connection between a healthcare provider and a patient takes about 40 seconds. And in all the studies that we found that uh, it, it takes less than a minute. So it really doesn't take as long as we think it might take. And actually, it's a mindset shift that has to go on in order for us to realize that we actually do have time uh, to treat people with compassion. But to that, to just to follow on for one moment, there was a study from, there was a, a group of Harvard investigators who published a paper a few years back. And, and one of one of the uh, part of part of the methodology was to ask physicians who were being trained in, in empathy for patients to ask them, do you feel like you have enough time to treat patients with empathy and compassion? And 56% of those physicians said no. So just over half of physicians believe they actually don't have time for compassion. But all the data lines up to show that that's probably not true. And so I think a shift in mindset to realize that we do have time for compassion, and it'll actually make us feel different about the time that we have. Um, I think that, that that's really important. And it's had a meaningful impact on my practice, because now I'm realizing that when I feel rushed, I, I, um, it is not only the wrong thing to do to omit compassion from my, my care of patients, but it's also not very evidence-based if I were to do that. What you seem to be saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it is a fallacy to say that we don't have enough time. The reality is, if we take the time, it'll feel that we have the time in a way that doesn't make intuitive sense. But at the same time, we're serving ourselves by spending that 40 seconds with our patient. I will absolutely agree with what you said, except I want to make one thing clear. That's not my opinion. That's actually what the research shows. So if you go to the data, that's what the data show. And so I tell people all the time when speaking about compassionomics, I say, look, th this isn't my, this isn't what I believe. This isn't what I think or what I feel. This is just what I found. Okay. So Anthony Mazzarelli and I went through more than 1,000 scientific abstracts, more than 250 original research manuscripts. And in fact, in the 430 references in the book, 280 of them are original science research papers. So we're just really reporting on the data. Uh, and of course, it's not, 
it's not just data because we weave stories throughout the whole book in order to try to make it interesting for anybody, not just um, uh, healthcare providers. All right. Look, I want to particularly talk about the book in a moment, but I, I want to make a comment first. And the comment is this. Are you talking here about mindfulness? I think that mindfulness is a, a an important component of compassion and making a compassionate connection with a patient. Because if, if you're really not present in the moment, you're not going to be able to make that connection with a patient. So I think mindfulness is an important component, but I think you could also have mindfulness without much compassion. I'm not an expert in mindfulness. I should give you that caveat. Uh, I, I am studying, uh, but I'm not an expert in that, uh, at least not as of yet. But being present is an absolutely crucial component of compassion. In fact, people will often ask me, you know, what are the most important uh, components to making a compassion connection with a patient? And oftentimes, it's not actually what you say. It's just being present. So uh, sometimes just sitting with people uh, in their suffering is, is the most powerful communication that you can give someone. And uh, of the studies uh, that we report on, when there have been interventions, typically the interventions include some component of assurance of presence. And I think that that's what mindfulness is all about, as I understand mindfulness. It's being present in the moment. So, for example, uh, it might be, I know this is very hard for you to go through, and you're not alone. I'm here with you, and I'm going to be with you every step along the way. And so I, I do think that presence is vital. I think mindfulness is is a big part of that. Yes. But you're saying it's a little bit more than that because compassion is about then expressing that the feeling that you have, the feeling of warmth towards this person, seeing them and seeing their suffering and acknowledging it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Action is key. So if you don't mind, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take what you just said as a jumping off point and go into some definitions because what we, the approach that we took with Compassionomics and are continuing to take as we continue to do research in this field is that we are, are taking a scientific approach to what typically has been framed as a moral or ethical obligation or, a, or an emotional, sentimental uh, sort of thing. And, and we, we can talk about the, the difference and, and why the difference in approach. But definitions are key because if you're going to take a scientific approach, nomenclature is critical, just like it is with any other scientific pursuit. So there is some debate amongst compassion scientists, but in general, there's consensus in this way. So most scientists define compassion as the emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving an authentic desire to help. So it's different from empathy, which is the feeling and understanding component. So detecting another's emotions, feeling, understanding, understanding their perspective. It's uh, Empathy is feeling. Compassion is different because it's a responsive action. Now, of course, empathy is vital because if you can't detect another person's suffering, if you can't detect what their emotions are and you just are completely unaware of it, or it doesn't resonate with you for, for some reason, you're never going to be motivated to take action with compassion. So empathy is critically important, but they're different. They're separate and distinct. But empathy is feeling, compassion is action. What we, uh, what Don Berwick uh, of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement likes to say is that empathy 
plus action equals compassion. Uh, and that's probably the best way that, that I can describe it. Uh, so the sensing and understanding with empathy is vital, but, but what the patients feel is how you behave, how you behave towards them. They, they don't know what you're thinking in your mind, right? Uh, so it's the beha- it's the behavior that is what the patient feels from their perspective. All right. Look, I promised to talk about your book, but, but again, before we get to that, there's one thing I want, another comment I want to make, and that is that uh, America, like like all other countries, and and Australia in particular, is becoming very diverse with lots of different people, with lots of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, and everything that goes with that. Is this really about saying? We need to have this human connection. If we are to serve as doctors, empathy involves us actually getting to know the other guy uh, and understand his or her perspective. And then putting, adding to that action, then we get compassion and we become very good healers. Absolutely, I agree. And to your point about diversity, that's something we're actually, we have an original science research program um, with Compassionomics. We're very interested uh, in that as well. Uh, like, For example, is there a compassion gap? Uh, that's something I'm very, very interested in. Uh, and when I talk about a gap, thinking about it, can, can, are there healthcare disparities around patient experience of clinician compassion? So you could make an argument that every healthcare disparity has at its core some lack of compassion for disadvantaged persons, but typically they're sort of on the macro scale as it relates to like access to care and things like that. But they're also at the point of care can be disparities in compassion as well. And that's something that our group uh, is interested in studying. But to your point about really understanding someone's perspective, uh, one of the ways we like to, uh, or that we talk about, is knowing the patient as a person. And there's evidence, uh, for example, there was a Johns Hopkins study from years ago in 1,300 patients with HIV. And they asked the patients, Does your healthcare provider know you as a person? Now, HIV is a disease that can be controlled, but of course, adherence to medications is vitally important. Uh, uh, you must take your medicine every day and you can't miss doses. And so the, the investigators tested the association between knowing the patient as a person and adherence to therapy because there's evidence in the biomedical literature uh, and in just clinical experience that when healthcare providers care deeply about patients and patients feel that, they're more likely to take their medicine. So in the Johns Hopkins study, they studied 1,300 patients and they asked the patients, does your healthcare provider know you as a person? Knowing the patient as a person was associated with a 33% higher odds of adherence to therapy. But what's more striking is there was a 20% higher odds of having no detectable virus in the blood. So knowing the patient as a person, really understanding from their perspective and the patient feeling that because they detect it because they they indicated that my healthcare provider knows me as a person can have major effects on one's health in in very tangible ways. Yes, so we're seeing a connection here between con- uh, compassion, which is as you say, empathy and action, and the actual hard outcomes of patient improvement. Absolutely. So, really, in our approach, we're, we're asking. Uh, this question. Does compassion 
really matter. Now, you might say, of course, compassion matters, right? And, and of course, I would agree there's a moral, ethical obligation. We ought to treat people with compassion. I, I don't know any healthcare provider who would argue with that. But that's not the question. The question is, does it matter in not, not just meaningful ways, but also measurable ways? So we often in, in medicine, we'll talk about the art and the science of medicine. And, and I always historically thought about compassion in terms of the art of medicine. But it does compassion the science of medicine. Is there a convergence between the science and the art of, of, of medicine, in other words? And, and that's what we set out to do in, in going through all of the uh, publications, the 280 different publications. We took a different approach, a scientific approach, rather than a uh, emotional or sentimental approach to answer the question, does compassion really matter? And what we found is it matters for patients, for patient care, the quality of care, uh, and those who care for patients, so our healthcare providers, because there is abundant evidence that treating patients with compassion can actually build resilience and resistance to burnout in healthcare providers. Now, I did promise to ask you about your book. Uh, here's your chance. Tell us about the book. The book is called uh, Compassionomics, The Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference. My co-author and I, um, it's Anthony Mazzarelli, we uh, went through, essentially we tested the hypothesis that compassion matters in measurable ways. And we went through all the scientific literature. And once we curated all the data, it lined up with a, a striking signal in the data that compassion matters, and it was so compelling to us that we decided to write a book about it. So uh, I'm a physician scientist. I'm an intensivist, chair of the Department of Medicine at Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School, Rowan University. I was not all uh, focused on the science of compassion. Uh, my colleague and co-author, Anthony Mazzarelli, is the co-president and co-CEO uh, of our health system, uh, and he's an, a practicing emergency physician as well. And we began this journey together uh, because as, well, I told you the story about my son and the most pressing problem of our time, right about the time that that was happening, uh, Anthony was charged at, at, at that point in time, he was the chief medical officer, so the lead physician for all of our physicians, about 600 in total. And he was charged with improving patient experience uh, for our health system. And what he did was he decided to enlist my help, essentially, because I had the research background and in his thinking that if uh, we took a, a rigorous scientific approach, it would be compelling to everybody, especially everybody in our physician practice. And, and that was just at the time when I was rethinking my research career and what I wanted to be spending my time on. And then uh, after we curated all the data uh, it just lined up to this uh, this striking signal, and um, we just want to spread the message as far and wide as we can. Okay. So when was the book published? The book uh, was published just about six weeks ago. We we neither Anthony or I ever uh, wrote a book. That we're both first time authors. What we loved doing was we took all the stories, some of the best stories that he had from his training, I had from my training, and stories that people, uh, colleagues were, were giving to us. And, and, and we just 
weaved it all together, uh, stories and science, uh, and tried to strike a really good balance of both to make it both eye-opening from a data perspective, but also entertaining from a story perspective. Steve Trisiak, it's been a, an honor speaking with you today. Any last thoughts as we wind up our conversation? Well, I think my, my overarching thought is that, yeah, I'll just leave you with one more thing. Actually, two more things. One is that my story is also in this book. Uh, it's a story of where the science meets the personal. So I personally, uh, after more than 20 years of taking care of ICP, found myself in the throes of burnout. Uh, I, I had everything that was on the list, and I didn't know what to do. And so I'm, I'm a bit of a research nerd. So I went to the data. What am I supposed to do? And everything that I found in the data was not too appealing to me because it, it suggested what I, I consider an escapist, uh, escapism sort of approach. So it goes something like this. Just get away more, detach, pull back, take more vacations, go on nature hikes. And all those things are super important because work-life balance is, is, uh, is obviously very important. But I wasn't buying it that that was the antidote to burnout. I figured that something had to change at the point of care. So in going through all the data, what we found in the burnout literature is that there is an association between compassion and burnout. But it, it was a bit counter to what I had been taught when I was a young person just entering uh, medicine. With There was this hidden curriculum that said something like this, don't be too compassionate. Don't con don't be too close to patients, because too much compassion will burn you out. Now, if that was true, we would see compassion and burnout associated, but in the same direction. So high compassion, high burnout. What we actually found in going through the evidence in the biomedical literature that there's an association. It's actually inverse. So high compassion, low burnout, and low compassion, high burnout. And it would be tempting to just take the opinion that burnout crushes compassion. But when you look at the totality of the evidence in the biomedical literature, it is the most compelling uh, signal is that it's actually low compassion that predisposes people to becoming burned out. So it's the people who don't connect with their patients and don't build meaningful bonds with their patients who under the same amount of stress are more likely to become burned out. And those people that have a strong human connection, uh, build uh, relationships with patients and care deeply. Those are the people that are having more fulfilling experiences in taking care of patients. And those, and those fulfilling experiences make one more resilient and less prone to burnout. So I guess the, la the thing I would leave you with is that there's good evidence in the biomedical literature that compassion for patients isn't just good for patients. It's good for the giver too. Steve Trisiak, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor, and thanks for having me on the podcast. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>